absolutely catastrophic mismanagement, the criminal overprinting of our U.S. dollar is rendering its value every day that goes by less and less. Therefore, take matters into your own hands, patriots. Click on the Find Out More button next to the gold bars that you'll find on the Black and White Network and protect your monetary assets now by investing in gold and silver. And tell them that Bill McIntosh sent you and protect your assets today. Yeah, it's it's kind of an amazing thing, you know, just to, isn't it great how people from di- different parts of the countries, probably very different different backgrounds, one of the backgrounds, yeah, the Yankee, one of the Southerner. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they were patriots. They, they love their job and they love protecting the United States. They were a couple of the best, uh, well, everybody I worked with, um, were the best. They had your back. Everyone knew, the, everyone knew that everyone had everyone's back. They could trust you. They knew that you had integrity. They knew, everyone knew that you were going to do the right thing, the responsible thing. Everyone trusted everyone to do their job and everyone trusted everyone to have everyone else's back, which is the way That's it should. Yeah, sure. And it's, uh, it's just an amazing thing that this, this all happened It all. Point, it, it points to underscores certain um, traits of our country characteristics, you know, of, of the people that, that believe in the United States and, and, and protect it. They've dedicated their lives to protecting it. Um, and so many things came together. In one sense, you could say that, you know, 9-11 united us, brought us together, people from different backgrounds. But in the last um, last couple of years, we, we've seen our country now becoming incredibly polarized, terribly divided. Terribly um, divided. And yeah, it's one yeah. of these things that it's so bad that uh, I have no doubt at all that it's affecting uh, our ability to um, to make um, intelligence, perform intelligence gathering, and you know we're developing intelligence assets, and we, we got away from a uh, let's say a, a culture of competence and and excellence and patriotism and integrity uh, to pers- pursue let's say other concerns or other objectives that have le- le- left us vulnerable and to such a great extent, you know? Um, yeah, there are, there are still old as well as new and emerging threats that um, people would be shocked to know, especially the new and emerging threats people would be shocked about. And, you know, my, my problem is that, the media in general certainly does not have any institutional knowledge or memory uh, at all. Uh, you know, they, you know, what they do report on, they don't report very well. Um, or they, they don't, or they don't even report it at all, or they just don't even recognize what needs to be reported on. And, and I attribute to, uh, that to, to, you know, their, their lack of, subject matter expertise in homeland or national security or intelligence uh, and not having that kind of background. Um, and they, they certainly show their, their lack of institutional knowledge and memory all the time. I mean, some of the things that I hear, uh, you know, they could easily research. It might take them some time, but I guess they don't want to invest in it. I don't know. It's sad because the state of open source intelligence um, capabilities now, uh, you know, very advanced uh, te- OSINT 
capable technologies that are available now is incredible. Um, and of course, sure. you know, in the intelligence community, it's part of the all collection, all source collection process. At the, back in the day, you know, we didn't have the ways to, um, uh, to access it and uh, cross-reference it and index it and, and what have you. We didn't have social media and other things like that, or big data that we could mine, but now we do. So all source intelligence has become a, 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 a very integral part of the, of the all all source intelligence collection process. Um, and, you know, there are journalists, there's, they have access, well, I guess they, they want to pay for it. They have access to, to some of those kinds of capabilities, but then you have to know what you're looking for. You have to know what to search for. You know, what kind of, have to have, know what kind of a search string to look for. You have to have an ability to, to say, oh, this dot connects to that, or maybe I should look at this and see where that goes. Uh, even if, I, I guess I'm saying, if you even forget the technology, you still have to know what to do with it. Right. And it also takes a certain amount of circumspection uh, when you're a news gatherer or somebody who's, who's reporting on things that you can't always have a huge headline, a huge impactful headline, you know, that's going to you know, generate millions of clicks. You know, you, you may not be able to pull it off. How about how about we get it right? How about we um, we develop uh, a good relationship working with people in the government and um, and try to report it partially. But of course, you know, uh, put, give pushback and question things that don't seem to add up. So um, I guess these these um, these two human intelligence figures, you know, did they um, do we know much about them beyond that? Their families, their were they? Did the government take care of their families afterwards? Can you comment yes. on that? Yes, they were take, they were taken care of. Right. So then, of course, we look at the the gaping craters in in know-how that their loss probably constituted do you, were they able and this becomes a rhetorical question you know was the intelligence community able to um you know uh fill the breach for the sudden uh, losses of, of very very skilled intelligence figures or were they completely caught flat-footed on that score Concerning uh, institutional memory preservation. Well, I mean, there was certainly unique knowledge that both of them had um, that, you know, was very valuable and, and uh, you know, should have been preserved. But um, I, I, I don't think that it really impaired any capabilities. It, it, it was just a... a huge personal loss and it, well, it was, and it was an intelligence loss in the sense of the things that they knew the operations that they had been on and what they could you know uh, talk about within classified circles and you know or give advice or relate this or that uh, but i don't think that it it terribly it really impaired um any collection any important collection capabilities uh it was just a huge lost to the ability to have more people like them doing that. Right. I mean, they could impart the knowledge and the, and the skills, right? Exactly. I mean, they, I mean they, they were skilled instructors as well because you know, they were, you know, there were people coming up through the ranks that they had to um, uh, Coach. teach certain tradecraft to. Right. Wow. Uh, 
amazing thing, a sad thing. Um, so, you know, do you, do you think the, you know, the intelligence community has, can, can uh, find some sort of a way to address the, the whole issue of institutional memory and maintaining uh, that flame lit and to pass the baton of knowledge and, and um, you know, criteria, analytical abilities, that ability to see emerging threats with disparate information. Um, I, I you think know, that there, make any progress. Yeah, I think, I not think, I, I know that there are, there are many seasoned veterans in, in all throughout the intelligence community who have a lot of institutional knowledge and memory and, you know, and manuals have been written, guidelines have been written, and a lot of them prepare their own ways of doing things as they're teaching new analysts coming up. Um, of course, you know, the technology is very useful, uh, but, you know, they, the, the people coming up through the ranks are very bright. These are bright, bright analytical people. And most of them have an innate ability uh, at pattern recognition and connecting dots. And they know that they have access to all of these enormous databases of information, but their instructors and the people who um, help uh, them to develop their skills and understanding, um, they're still there. I don't think that th there's a huge, huge gap there. It's just over time, through attrition, um, we're going to continue to lose that that um, uh, capability. Is what I'm afraid of. We were you were affected by 9/11, and because of the loss of several people, um, you also knew some people who were on the flight. Can you talk about that? Uh, flight 77, yes. American Airlines Flight 77, yeah. that slammed into yeah. them. And again, um, uh, I lived. I had moved to. Um, I, after I'd gotten out, I moved down to uh, Culpeper, Virginia, which is about 60, 65 miles south of D.C. Um, bought an old historic 1870 home down there. And um, there was a couple uh, there in, in Culpeper that I had met uh, and I knew. And uh, it wasn't until afterwards that uh, I learned that they had been on Flight 77. Amazing. Then... Um, uh, if you remember the Washington or the DC sniper, uh, oh, yes. argu yeah. arguably was engaged in jihad. Uh, one of his victims uh, was a woman I knew very well. Um, she was shot in the head with her husband as they were walking in the parking lot to their car at Home Depot in Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, she had just left the agency. In fact, I'd had lunch with her. Uh, maybe two weeks earlier, and we were discussing other opportunities for her uh, within the intelligence community after she had retired from the agency, and she eventually went to work for uh, the FBI, what was then the FBI's uh, um, NIPIC, the National Infrastructure Protection Center, which um, after the Department of Homeland Security was stood up, it was merged into uh, the National Protection, uh, National Protection Director or something. I can't remember the exact directorate, but um, sure. uh, yeah, and her, uh, you know, so that was a great loss. And um, uh, of course, Oklahoma City bombing. I'm from Oklahoma City originally. Um, 
I wasn't living here at the time. I was in DC for 17 years. And I, family, friends, we all knew somebody who was uh, killed when uh, McVeigh blew up the Alfred Murrah Federal Building. And so it's, what it's, is it's, it? very per, it's very personal to me, not, not to mention the fact that my father served in the OSS. Oh, he did. He did. Which, yes. uh, which did he serve in which country did he, did he serve in? Did he, uh, was he, was he behind well, the lines? He, yes, he was. He was officially, uh, attached to uh, two times to the 501 and the 506 PIR of the 101st. Um, yeah, he was behind the lines. Um, Wow. And then after he got out, he um, joined the agency, segued in, uh, and stayed stayed in through uh, Korea, and then got out. As he told me, he began to see the writing on the wall in Southeast Asia and didn't want anything to do with it anymore. Wow. So, okay. Great. Well, you know, and, and you, you also know, I think it was a Dr. Peter Mar uh, Margella, who was he... Was he on site at the Pentagon when the attack occurred, or was he just... Yes, he was not very far away. And if people want the, the best, what I consider the best inside, firsthand, personal account of what happened that morning, uh, they should listen to my, uh, to, to my interview or Peter's uh, talking about that morning and what happened, uh, because he was not very far away from where it happened. In fact, uh, uh, he had a very high position. Uh, he was uh, chief of medical plans and operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as the medical plans and response advisor to the president aboard the National Airborne Command Center, which he would have been on that morning if, that, if it had been maybe half an hour or an hour later. Because that morning he was, he was uh, going to be on a, a highly what was then a highly classified training uh, uh, simulation on board the the National Air National Airborne Operations Center uh, Night Watch uh, they call it derisively they call it the Doomsday Plane, and it had it been an hour a half an hour hour later uh, he would have been on it and I'm quite certain he probably would uh, the training exercise would have been. A, deactivated and he probably would have been redirected to meet up with Bush. Uh, so, but he was, so he's nearby. Was he actually in the building? Yes, he was. Uh, he was, not, I mean, he was very close to what is called the, um, uh, the National Military Command Center, uh, which is DOD's command and communications hub for the National Command Authority, which is the president, secretary of defense. In fact, it was Peter, uh, defense secretary Rumsfeld, uh, uh, Joint Chairman, uh, uh, JCS uh, Co-Chair, U.S. Air Force General Richard Myers, and just a handful of other senior officers who were in the National Military Command Center at the time. And no one knew what was going on. In fact, he was in, in the NMCC when uh, uh, Cheney uh, gave Rumsfeld the orders uh, to shoot down any uh, commercial passenger plane in or around the restricted Washington, D.C. airspace. Uh, he was he was right in the thick of it. Amazing. So then he was. And by the way, did he did he sustain any injuries, or he was not close enough? Uh, well, they weren't very far away. I mean, the NMC. You know, when they got into the National Military Command Center, I mean, the fire was already coming through the walls and uh, the ceiling. Uh, he he inhaled 
a lot of nasty stuff. Um, and he's, he, he doesn't talk about it a lot, but I, I'm sure that he, uh, he's had problems uh, since then. And of course, he knows people and helps people directly because um, they were probably, I don't know, 90 yards maybe from the impact zone. Yeah, it's very close. Because I mean uh, that that the, the, you know the, the explosive force of a jetliner flying, they estimated it was going 530 miles per hour when it slammed into the I think the first floor of the Pentagon. It it um, uh, with with a lot of fuel, you know, several tons of of, of highly flammable fuel. He tells the story when they were in the National Military Command Center, you know, and, you know, they, they, uh, Cheney, I mean, uh, Rumsfeld was there, Dick Myers was there, there was just a couple of other people there, and there was Peter, and there was a, a retired colonel who was a civilian who was still working there, and he was sitting at the, um, uh, at the desk, um, you know, was with sort of his, his hands kind of up to his, his, his lips like, you know, he was praying. And he wasn't watching the TV and Peter was just enamored that, you know, he wasn't watching like everyone else was. And, and he looked at, and he knew him and he looked at him and he said, what are you thinking? And he said, the, he said, they're coming for us. And he said it wasn't more than 15 seconds after those words left his mouth that they, the plane hit the Pentagon and, and they felt it. He said that the room just moved right and then moved left, knocked, everybody fell down. They thought one um, uh, colonel probably may have broke his arm because he fell so hard. And uh, they weren't sure what happened. Um, uh, Rumsfeld and, and Myers went into action and said, you know, there was an admiral that just picked Peter up by the collar of his shirt and said, get everybody out, start getting everybody out. Because uh, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if there's any more coming in or not. Absolutely. And Peter kind of got dragged with with a crowd because they were in the chairman's corridor, you know, where the sec def comes in, where the the chief, uh, joint chief staff chairman comes in, and they were ushered down in this corridor. Um, and of course, you know, there's there's the gaping hall, and, and they all just looked up, and you know, here's this huge fireball, you know you know, five, six, 700 feet in diameter in a big mushroom cloud. And Peter said, you know, his first thought was, have we just been hit by a tactical nuke? Nobody knew what oh had happened. Gosh. Yeah, nobody said, hey, that's far-fetched. No. no. <laughs> and, and, then, and then they realized, oh, my God, we've got to get back inside because we're going to be in charge of the response. Because at that time, um, I forget what the name of the organization was, uh, and Peter was responsible for it. It was the military's uh, civilian support to civilian authorities in 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 the event of a disaster. I can't think of the exact name. And he said, my God, you know, because we're we're probably going to have to react to this. We're going to be, you know, have to respond to this. We have to get back in. And he said, just as they were coming back in to go up the stairs, you know, the the Pentagon's um, uh, security uh, police 
you know, they already were there. They had their baklavas on, you know, and, and they had mini guns strapped to their chest and they saw them and they racked those guns and pointed right at them. And Peter said, you know, they both held up their cards and said, look, we're in MCC. We're, the, the, we're the, the medical guys. We've got to get back in. We've got to take care of this. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's a, it, it, you know, people need to really uh, listen to his story because it, like I said, it's probably the most, the, the best firsthand inside account I've, I, I've, ever heard from anybody wow no that's just sounds like a what what an incredible eyewitness testimony he must have about 9-11 uh, at the pentagon so well listen anthony uh it's been great having you on the bill mcintosh show to oh, discuss bill, thank you so much it's been a pleasure and an honor uh, two real people it's my pleasure two real people uh, two human intelligence professionals who tragically died you know, uh, being, you know, basically martyred, you know, for serving the country they loved, you know, at the Pentagon, um, you know, giving important information to our military leaders to be able to protect our country. And, you know, in the, in the service to, um, to our nation, they were killed, tragically. This, is the, People this were, is the first time I've actually talked about them, too. I, I'll have you know. Um, well, um, so I, I appreciate you know, you ask me, oh, it's give fine. me the opportunity. Um, at some point, I'm going to, I've been working on a screenplay about that whole period of my life, so I can kind of honor a lot of these people. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity because they were true patriots and it was a terrible loss. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing, you know, to think that they had, their families had such remarkable loved ones that died, but they can't really be recognized isn't that something it, it, because they um, you know it's the caliber uh, of their service was so special yeah. i mean it's not just cia uh undercover agents i mean there's you know elements of uh, special forces that, that cannot be identified right it's, what, what do they say at, at, at um, the cia headquarters our failures get publicized and our biggest successes yeah. remain yeah yeah yeah, our successes are never, you know, our successes are never, um, are never talked about, but our failures always are. Castro Secrets, Cuban Intelligence, the CIA, and the Assassination of John F. Kennedy by Brian Littell, former CIA analyst for Latin America, with permission from the author. The absolutely catastrophic mismanagement, the criminal overprinting of our U.S. dollar is rendering its value every day that goes by less and less. Therefore, take matters into your own hands, patriots. Click on the Find Out More button next to the gold bars that you'll find on the Black and White Network and protect your monetary assets now by investing in gold and silver. And tell them that Bill McIntosh sent you and protect your assets today. Well, Velasquez y Blanco was the consul general and possibly the Cuban in contact with Oswald. Getting to know a well-informed American Marine enamored of Cuba's revolution and volunteering like the heralded William Morgan to fight for it, would have been within the expected range of responsibilities for a consul. Velasquez may have thought Oswald had the potential to become another celebrity volunteer like Morgan. In any event, it is now known with near certainty that the consulate opened a dossier on their enthusiastic young contact. It would have included copies of the letters sent to Oswald and summaries of their conversations. I believe that later it must have been transferred to the Cuban Espionage Service, the Dirección General de Inteligencia, or DGI, after the consulate closed when diplomatic relations were severed in January 1961. The existence of the file is important because for 50 years, Fidel Castro has denied 
that he and the DGI knew anything about Oswald before the assassination. Quote, we never in our life heard of him, end quotes. He insisted in a speech about 30 hours after Kennedy's death. Four days later, he spoke again at the University of Havana, and his denials were even more robust. As described in chapters one and two, for about 48 years, Castro was Cuba's supreme spymaster, making every key decision, managing the minutest details of important operations, even hosting friendly meetings with his most outstanding foreign penetration agents. It would therefore have been characteristic for him to have insisted on knowing everything he could about Oswald as he prepared to deliver those speeches. In all likelihood, he demanded to see everything the DGI had collected about the assassin. One proof of Fidel's duplicity is a telephone conversation between two Cubans, secretly recorded by the CIA station in Mexico City. On the evening of November 22, 1963, a few hours after Kennedy was murdered, a man, seemingly a DGI officer, placed a call to Luisa Calderon at the Cuban consulate in the Mexican capital. The CIA had installed a number of taps on embassy phone lines and transcribed the most important conversations. The young and ebullient Calderon was of interest. She was known by the CIA to be a DGI officer. The CIA's transcripts include the following incriminating comment about Oswald by the caller. Oh, yes, he knows Russian well. And also, this fellow went with Fidel's forces into the mountains or wanted to go, something like that, in quotes. Calderon responded with a single exclamation, serious, in quotes. The caller then abruptly changed the subject also with just one word, enough, he said, as if he had already revealed too much over a phone line that Cuban intelligence surely suspected was tapped. A question never previously asked was, how could the caller have known that Oswald, quote, wanted to go with Fidel's forces into the mountains, end quotes. There had been no media coverage of any such talk by the assassin before Calderon's conversation. He is not known to have confided those plans with anyone other than Delgado, Marina, and apparently the Los Angeles Cubans. The caller could only have known this by reading the secret DGI files. Four other sources have confirmed that Fidel and the DGI had advanced knowledge of Oswald. Vladimir Rodriguez Lajera, the first important defector from Cuban intelligence, fully trusted by the CIA and used in sensitive operations, told his handlers in May 1964 that Castro had lied. The defector was at DGI headquarters in Havana when news of Kennedy's death was broadcast. It was there that he heard other officers discussing what they already knew about Oswald. Alfredo Mirabal, an intelligence officer under consular cover at Havana's Mexico City Embassy, inadvertently revealed in 1978 that in September 1963, he had informed headquarters about Oswald. Jack Childs, a trusted FBI agent in his highly sensitive Operation Solo, also provided reliable information proving that Castro knew about Oswald before November 1963. Childs' undercover work included a meeting with Castro in Havana in May 1964 that is described in Chapter 7. Remarkably, Castro revealed to Childs that he had been aware that while at the Cuban consulate in Mexico City, Oswald had threatened to murder Kennedy. And finally, Florentino Espiaga, the highest level, most decorated officer ever to defect from the DGI, is convinced that Fidel had advanced knowledge of the assassination in Dallas. Espiaga's story is told throughout the following chapters. Yet these indicators of Cuban regime deception and apparent DGI engagement with Oswald have never been properly evaluated. The Los Angeles consulate contacts were overlooked by the FBI and the Warren Commission. The CIA did not inform the commission of Calderon's November 20. Second phone conversation. 
Rodriguez Lajeda's knowledge that Castro had lied apparently was not shared with the commission. Mirabal's incriminating error went unnoticed. In June 1964, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover submitted a report that minimized and distorted the meaning of the Operation Solo information acquired from Castro. Aspiaga's story was not publicly revealed until the initial publication of this book. Until Oswald's own death two days after Kennedy's, the allure of Castro's revolution never faded. Yet after leaving the Marine Corps, Oswald decided impulsively, it appears, to defect to the Soviet Union rather than to live in Cuba. During his last months at El Toro, he was straddling the two competing impulses. Delgado remembered that every so often after Oswald started to get in contact with his Cuban people, he started getting little pamphlets and newspapers, and he always got a Russian paper. Another Marine, his roommate, remembered Oz spending a lot of time studying Russian, reading Russian language books, and becoming better versed in Marxist ideology. Soon, to be a civilian, he was considering these two alternatives for starting a new life. Why he chose Moscow will never be known. There is no reliable evidence, for example, that he ever felt an abiding attraction to the Soviet Union, similar to what thrilled him about Cuba. Marguerite Oswald, his mother, who knew his quirks and needs better than anyone, understood how easily he might have gone in the other direction. She told an FBI agent in 1964 that she was surprised and upset after learning he had, quote, gone to Russia. It would not have surprised her at all, she said, if he had instead defected to Cuba. If the Warren Commission had asked Nelson Delgallo, he might have said exactly what Marguerite did. She obviously had heard her son speak adoringly of Castro. You've been listening to Castro's Secrets, Cuban Intelligence, the CIA, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy by former CIA analyst for Latin America, Brian Littell. <laughs>